Good evening, City Life. How are we doing? Good. It's great to be here. I was, my name is Steve Ruggiero, obviously filling in for Pastor Justin tonight. On the way here, you know, the weather was pretty rough. We live in Newport News. And my wife had said to me, you know, she was just kind of, it was about a 30-minute drive. She, I guess she was tired. Maybe it was leftovers from Thanksgiving. I don't know. But she said, you better be peppy, Pastor, because I don't know how much I can stay awake because I'm pretty tired. And I just asked her, what's that stuff that's in Turkey supposed to make you tired? Trip to Japan or something? Yeah, well, let's hope that it's all out of your system for tonight. Okay, I, I think it's safe to say that we've officially entered the Christmas season. I don't know what camp you belong to. I know it's pretty violent war between when you can and when you can't set up your Christmas decorations. You know, my wife would do it on the 4th of July. You know, if nobody would, you know, would complain, she likes it that much. But I know as of today, this weekend, everyone should be putting up Christmas decorations. And like many of you, I try to remember, you know, the reason for the season but oftentimes it's that other reason that I'm often distracted by. It's that retail reason, the cash registers and credit cards, right? So I was sitting there, I was thinking to myself as I was planning for Christmas shopping, I was remembering a couple months ago, I was like, wow, do you remember the Mega Millions and the Powerball jackpot from a couple months ago that got up to like $1.5 billion? They said that our chances, the news were saying that your chances of winning that was one in 88 quadrillion if you, to win both of them. Now, I don't know if you know what a quadrillion is, but that would be one in 88 million billion chances of winning. And yet, here are my tickets. Here are my tickets, right? So for just a couple dollars, I sat around the house and planned what I was going to do with my billions of dollars. You know, would I quit work, travel, buy another house? How much was I going to give away? And more importantly, to who? Now, I don't know about you, but as I was sitting there thinking about winning these billion dollars, I thought for a second, you know what? If I were to win this money, all my problems would be solved. All my problems would be solved. I get it, yeah. I'd have some new problems to deal with, but they'd be nothing compared to what I'm dealing with today. Would you agree? I mean, that's what we think. Man, if I could just win that money, all my problems would go away. And yet, Don McNay, a financial consultant to lottery winners and the author of the book, Life Lessons of the Lottery, he said that most people, believe it or not, they blow through that money really, really fast. And a lot of them even end up divorced. Some sadly even commit suicide because they can't handle the weight of all of that money. And then he, he finished by saying this, which, which I think we're going to touch on a little bit tonight. He said it's interesting because it made their lives worse instead of better. The money made their lives worse instead of better. And I share that because many of us in here tonight, whether we really want to admit it or not, we're quick to look outside of ourselves for a better life. We believe that the problem, whether on a small scale personally with you and I, is really out there. And even society as a whole, man, it, it, the problem is not here. It's out there because really, I mean, if it was within you and within me, we'd do something about it. 
I mean, if better was within you and better was within me, I would have done something about it already, right? I mean, I would be a better employee if I had a better boss. I'd be a better spouse if my spouse would just get their act together. I'm not pointing to you, babe. I, I, I would be a better parent if my kids were more obedient. You know, I'd be, and I'd even be a better Christian if the pastor would just listen to my advice every now and then. And I would be a better citizen in the community if people just took time to listen to my point of view. Because if better was up to me, I'd do something about it. But would we? Would we really? Do you think you would do something about it? If, if better was up to you, if a happier healthier, more fulfilled life was up to you. Do you believe you would do something about it? Let me take it a step further. What if your life depended on it? What if your life depended on it? What if a well-informed, trusted, authority figure sat down in front of you and they said, listen, you need to make some difficult and enduring changes to the way you think, feel, and act. And if you don't, you're going to die. I mean, could you change? Would you change when change mattered most? Now, when I ask people that question, because I've asked it before, I often get this. Absolutely. I would do whatever I had to. And to be fair, some of you in this room, you probably would. But you know what? Research shows that most of you wouldn't. In fact, the odds of you and I actually doing something about it are nine to one. That's nine to one against us. Sure, they're better odds than winning the lottery, but they're not so good when you're gambling with your life. In fact, I read about a recent conference that was held in New York City that brought together all the top research scientists in the world and some of the top doctors for a conference in New York where they said, you know what, if we can get all these people in the room, let's try to cre be creative and innovative and, and brainstorm some of the ways to solve some of the world's biggest problems. Let's get these smart people in the room. Topping the list is no surprise. Healthcare, healthcare reform. Did you know that the United States spends $3.2 trillion every year on healthcare? $3.2 trillion. 80% of that budget goes to five behaviors, five controllable behaviors, 80% of it. Too much smoking, too much drinking, too much eating, too much stress, and not enough exercise. 80% of our health care budget. Let me give you an example. Let's take coronary bypass surgery and angioplasty. If you're not familiar with it, bypass surgery restores blood flow to your heart by diverting the blood flow around a, a, a section of clogged artery where the angioplasty is like a, uh, a little insert they put inside your arteries to, and like a balloon to blow it up so blood can flow through. 
over 1.5 million people every year. That's the population of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Every year undergo coronary bypass surgery or angioplasty at a cost of $70 billion. 1.5. Everyone in Philadelphia, cheesesteaks, going to get bypass surgery. Think about it. The result? Less than 3% of those procedures. Less than 3% prevent the heart attack that they were intended to avoid. And why? Because that bypass graft, it clogs up within two years. The angioplasty, within two months. And why? Researchers said that after two years, nearly 90% of the people have not changed their lifestyle. They're not doing anything about it. And these researchers said this, which is where we're going to touch on tonight. We're missing something. These are the smart people. We're missing something. Even though patients know they have a very bad disease and they know they should change their lifestyle for whatever reason, they don't. They can't. And they won't. Look, folks. Change is hard. Change is hard. And yet change is at the heart of Jesus' message. It's at the heart of his message because, listen to me, Jesus is that well-informed, trusted authority figure who sits in front of you and he sits in front of me and he says, you have to make some difficult and enduring changes to the way you think, the way you feel, and the way you act or you're going to die. And now, you may not die physically right away like someone who won't change their diet, but you will see the death of your potential, of your calling, of your gifts. You'll see the death of some relationships, peace, and joy. Jesus said this in John 10.10, which every person in this room is familiar with. I have come that they may have life to the full. You abundant life. We know that, right? But listen, that's not, that's not the words Jesus started his ministry with. If you remember from reading Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is baptized. After he's baptized, he's sent into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy. He overcomes Satan three times with, by battling, battling him with the word. And at the end, he's attended to by angels. Well, then Jesus leaves the wilderness. He goes to Capernaum, a small fishing village on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. Now, I, I'm sure Jesus said a few things from the time he left the wilderness to the time he set up camp in Capernaum. But you know what? Matthew says the first words Jesus said when he launches his ministry are repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what he launches his ministry with. Now, in 2018, we may recoil at the word repent for its judgmental overtones, but in the Greek, the word repent, metanoeo, it just means to change one's thinking, to change one's thinking for the better. That's why I titled tonight's message, 
thinking for a change. We have to think. We talk to so if he's sitting in front of us, he's saying, you have to change the way you think, feel, and act. It starts with changing our thinking. Jesus knew if you and I were to ever be like him, we must start by changing the way we see ourselves and the way we see the world. And that new way of thinking, it requires you and it requires me to do what we call at base camp, the men's ministry of city life, a deep dive. A deep dive. Using the iceberg metaphor, we're challenged to look under the surface of our lives at the reasons underlying our decisions and our actions. And unfortunately, listen, unfortunately, when it comes to diving deep, most of us just tread water. We may don a pair of swimming pool goggles, hold our breath, and look under the water, but it's altogether different to strap on a set of oxygen tanks and descend into the deep, dark, cold waters of our past. One of the reasons why? Because when it comes to deep change, most of us, we want a quick fix. We want a simple answer. We want the easy solution. In other words, we want a coronary bypass surgery and not a lifestyle change to our problems. We want what I call a duct tape solution. What can you give me right now to get me past this issue? Can we just tape something over it because I don't want to deal with it right now. I'll deal with it when it's really big, but I don't want to do anything right now. Just give me some tape and I'll just put it together and we'll move on. This becomes troublesome because we take that mindset into our relationship with Jesus. But Jesus knows better. And he loves us too much to let us settle for a temporary fix to our deep problems. Especially since we read in John 14 that he sent his Holy Spirit for these very moments. He's called counselor and comforter. See, Jesus knows what we need to do to change. Amen? But society doesn't. In that same verse, right after in John 14, 17, it says the world cannot accept him, the Holy Spirit, because it doesn't see him or know him. So the world doesn't know how to help us. So they rely, follow me, on three strategies. Three strategies for change. Facts, fear, and force. That's what they use to get you and to get me to change. Facts. 480,000 people die every year from smoking. Don't smoke. Eating fast food more than two to three times a week will increase your chances of diabetes. Don't eat fast food more than two or three times a week. Facts. Fear. Have you seen the texting and driving commercials? Where someone's texting and they get into a crash. Have you seen the smoking commercials where the lady, they show her when she's young and she looks pretty. And then she like takes off half of her jaw to finish the commercial. That's a fear tactic to get us to stop. When I was young, 
I was told, you need to put a seatbelt on because when we're in an accident, you're going to go right through the windshield. So now every time I think if I don't put my, I don't care if it's a fender bender, I'm going through the windshield. Right? That's fear. It makes me put my seatbelt on because I don't want to go through a windshield. Fear. Another one? Force. You break the law, I'll put you in jail. You're going to jail. I'll force you not to break the law. You drink and drive, I'll take your license. They'll take your license. Now I'm forcing you not to drive. And you know what? These are pretty good strategies. They're somewhat effective, but there's still external measures to help internal struggles. Now, if anyone understands change, it's the Apostle Paul. Man goes from killing Christians to laying down his life for them. And he knew the importance of getting our thinking right. The man knows a thing or two about transformation and change. Amen? And then he writes, which we all know, but we read through it so fast. He said, stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you, but be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think. NIV says a renewal. The word reformation, listen, it means making changes to something with the intention of setting it back on its right course. Stop imitating. How? With a total reformation of how we think. In Proverbs, Solomon, we read through Proverbs, we see he also knows a thing or two, wouldn't you say? The wisest man who ever lived about internal influences directing our change. He said this in the King James Version. I once heard a pastor say the King James Version. People don't read it enough today, but if it was good enough for Jesus to read, it's good enough for us today. He said in Proverbs 4.23, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. The NIV says, guard your heart. But, you know, for our purposes tonight, my favorite translation is the International Children's Bible for its colloquial approach. Don't you know sometimes we just need a broken down Barney style, and it says, be very careful about what you think because your thoughts run your life. Your thoughts run your life. So for the rest of our time tonight, I just want to highlight a couple key areas where, where you and I, I hope, will see that this thinking that we're doing is directing and driving our life specifically in two ways. One, with the identity, how we see ourselves and how we believe others see us, and the impact that we have, that we're called to have on our world today. But before I do that, let's lay some groundwork real fast. As adults... We think, you and I, we think on average of about 1,300 words per minute. About 1,300 words per minute scroll through your head and through mine. But we don't voice them all. Look, some more than others, but we don't voice them all. And that's a good thing, right? Could you imagine if they had a movie projector that shot through your thoughts and they had them up on the screen up here right now? Over the past 30 days, I'm saying in the past five minutes, if they were doing it for some of y'all here tonight, you'd be thinking like, hmm, I wonder how old he was when he lost his hair. Who wears pink when they're preaching? You know, I mean, it would be showing right up there, but we don't want that. We may think 1,300 words per minute, 
But we don't speak that many. And that's a good thing. We went out to dinner with Joe Jansen from Elam Fellowship a couple weeks ago. And, and he said, when I get to heaven, I know my wife, if we're there together, she's going to punch me in the stomach. Because God says he's going to reveal all of our thoughts. And she's going to see things that I thought and didn't say. So I'm just saying to you right now, honey, I'm sorry. So we'll see. So while the average person may think 1,300 words per minute, they only speak between 125 and 150. 125 to 150 words per minute. That means on average, your and my thoughts, only 10% are vocalized. 10%. Proverbs 18:21. The tongue has the power of life and death. So those 10% that we speak have an effect on the people around us. But those 10% we speak and the 90% that continues to scroll through your and my thoughts has a direct influence and impact on you and on me. And this is important, folks, because, listen, if, we're, if we think an average of 1,300 words per minute, that's 78,000 words per hour. If you, if you sleep for eight hours, if you're lucky enough to get eight hours of sleep, that means you're up for 16. And in those 16 hours, there's almost 1.25 million words scrolling through your mind, through my mind, like that stock trade or the stock prices, the stock ticker of Wall Street, just scrolling through our mind. Going by. And it affects you and it affects me in two ways. It defines our identity. Who we are is here, what we're thinking. And it determines our impact. Let's talk about the first one. Our thinking defines our identity. Now, I'm going to get a little bit vulnerable here tonight about some of the things that I've struggled with in the past. But let's talk real quick about identity. This is your and my unvarnished perception of how we see ourselves how we see ourselves, and how we believe other people see us. This consists of the words that, that go through your mind and go through my mind that we grab onto and we say, this is our truth. This is my truth. And it doesn't matter if it's true or not, really. It matters if you believe it's true. And then those words and phrases and labels that you and I hold onto, they drive our consistent actions, reactions, and behaviors. Psychologists call it identity formation, otherwise called individuation. And they talk about how it develops. It's like our unique personality, and it develops and gets locked into place in adolescence between the ages of 13 and 19. All of us, for the most part that I see, except maybe one or two, have been 13, have made it to 19. And all of those phrases, labels, and words, we said, okay, what's true? What isn't? What's true? I'll take this. I'll hold on to that. But let me say this. You and I were handed a set of raw data when we turned 13 to work with. It consists of things like family dynamics, the level of parental involvement, many external and environmental influences like peer pressure, school, church, sports, today even social media, all of those things, all of them 
begin to create for you and for me an identity. Pastor Fred talks about it. He calls it scripts. Psychologists call it schema. And it's, they say this, schema is core beliefs developed in childhood in response to early life events, which bias the way we sub- subsequently perceive our experiences. You have one, and I have one. Now, fortunately, follow me. Some of us were told when we were young that we were loved, that we're strong, that we're beautiful, that we're talented, that we're unique, that we're capable, that, that we're, we're fun to be around, that we have what it takes. Some of us were told that, but some of us weren't. Some of us were told that we were a mistake, that we were an accident, that we're worthless, unwanted, incapable, weak, too fat, too skinny, unattractive, not good enough. In my case, growing up, I created in my adolescence into early adulthood a chameleon type personality. I kind of watched what was around me, and I tried to become that person for that situation or for that person. I, I tried to track whatever was happening and do what I needed to do to make the situation calmer, funnier, happier, less stressful. And there's a reason for that. There's always a reason. I grew up in an environment that was at times both scary and unstable. When I was very young, seven or eight, my mother and I had to run out of the house. We left a very abusive home, very abusive, and left in the middle of the night. Later, not knowing how to deal with the dysfunction and the divorce and separating siblings and all of that stuff at a young age, seeds of rejection and insecurity took root in my heart. And then from that, the fruit of that was to be accepted or to feel safe. I watched and I tried to figure out what was needed so I wouldn't be left again. What would what did I need to do now to be accepted, to be affirmed? And I did it. And sometimes that identity, it lasted for 10 minutes. Sometimes it lasted for 10 years. So look, all of us, all of us have to navigate the bumpy waters of adolescence and adulthood with both truth and lies bumping off of each other inside of our head until eventually all of our thoughts end up looking like if you've ever begun a Scrabble board, they look like all these tiles on a Scrabble board that you're just moving around and you're trying to put them together to figure out what am, who am I, what, what am I supposed to do here, what does this look like? And then Jesus comes along. And then Jesus Christ enters the picture. And you're told, and I'm told, his word takes precedence over everything else you've heard. 
So you should change. Because if we allow the Holy Spirit to come into us, he begins disassembling everything in here, everything we remember, everything we've heard, and he begins trying to replace the lies and the false agreements with his truth. Little by little, word by word, he takes one out and he puts one in, but that's not always what happens. Unfortunately, rather than having these new truths replace these old lies, we know what we do? We just add them in. We add them into all the other things that are going on in our mind because we've been running on autopilot for decades. And so all of these truths of the gospel that Jesus came for, we just like wheelbarrow and dump them all into a mind that's already overflowing, scrolling like the stock ticker. And, hey, look, and what happens eventually, that reformation that Paul talks about begins looking more, begins feeling more like a debate than a pardon. Because that old man and that old woman, they're not just walking away. They don't just leave. They have squatters' rights, and they're willing to fight for their truth against his truth. And our thinking begins to look like a debate on stage. With one side, you have the old man, the old woman, with all of its history and experiences. And on the other side, you have the new, the new man, the new woman, all these truths from Jesus, right? So from here, you hear, you don't have what it takes. Well, you're more than a conqueror. No, you don't matter. No, you're chosen. Royal priesthood. You're ugly. You're God's worksmanship. You have no friends. I accept you as my friend. You're never going to change. You're just like him. You're just like her. You're never going to change. You are a new creation. If anyone be in Christ, the new has come, the old is gone. No one cares. I'm on my own. No, you're not. Jesus died for you. He died for you because he loves you. See, that debate, that goes on and on and on in our mind. We may not manifest it all the time, but it happens oftentimes moment by moment. And you and I, we have to make a decision in our thinking for a change, which one we're going to listen to, which one are we going to follow? A couple weeks ago, maybe a week or so ago, Sarah Crump goes to this church, posted something on Facebook, and I called her and asked her if I could share it because I'm literally praying and reading over what I want to talk about, and then I read her post on Facebook, and she said, I'm a recovering perfectionist. High expectations and disappointments ruled my life. That's what she said on Facebook. Later in life, she shared how that affected, listen, her relationships and her identity. So you can imagine, right? I'm like, ooh, this is exactly what I'm talking about. She's literally talk, saying it affected those things. She said, my desire not to be a problem became my problem. It became my identity. 
I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to be a problem. I'm not going to be a problem. Guess what? My identity, I'm not going to be a problem. She said, but through prayer and fellowship, she's changing her thinking. Now she says, I've I've resolved to be seen. I'm living in my acceptance from Christ, not someone else. Sarah's struggle, my struggle, your struggle, they're not new. They're not new. Over the past, past few weeks at Newport News, Pastor Fred has been doing a sermon called In the Crowd. And in that message, he, he talked about Daniel, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they were given new names and new identities by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian culture. Track this with me. Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar from, here's the meaning, Daniel, God is my judge, to Belteshazzar, the treasure of Bel, B-E-L, a Babylonian cultural god. Hananiah, God is gracious, changed to Shadrach, command of Aku, A-K-U, another Babylonian cultural god. Mishael, who is like God, changed to Meshach, who is like Aku. Azariah, God helps, changed to Abednego, the servant of Nebo, N-E-B-O, a Babylonian cultural god. But check this out. 300 to 400 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 46.1, listen, says this. Bel bows down, the Babylonian god. Nebo stoops low. Their idols are born carried by beast of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together. Unable to rescue the burden, they themselves, they go off into captivity. Folks, when you or I agree and allow the culture or other people to tell us who we are, it weighs us down. It burdens us with their definition of who we are. And listen, we become captive to their opinions. When I accepted the labels of others, I walked away that they appreciated. Everyone around me may have liked it, the people I was trying to please, but to me, it weighed me down with sin, shame, selfishness, all of it for a cultural God. But remember what I said earlier. Jesus Christ shows up and says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's that's the one we want to follow. Can you attest to the heaviness of of an identity that you've tried to carry outside of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's striving for perfection. Maybe it's getting your self-worth from your performance. Maybe it's people-pleasing. Maybe it's insecurity or maybe it's shame. I'm reading through a book now by Brene Brown called Dare to Lead, and she said, unwanted identity is one of the primary elicitors of shame. Unwanted identity. We don't want it. Yet we're wearing it, and that causes shame. 
Isaiah also said, they go off into captivity, become captive to other people's opinion. We end up striving to fill someone else's definition of what does it look like to be beautiful? What does it look like to be strong? What is a man? What does strength look like? See, if we let the world or other people tell us what that is, we're captive now, prisoners to other people's opinions. And that's where I was. But more importantly, when our identity, when our identity is defined by other people, our capabilities and our capacity to impact the world for Christ is thus limited to what they say and not what he says. We're limited. We're capped by what they say, not what he says, which leads me to our next point. The second place where our thinking, our thinking determines our impact. What you think about, what scrolls in your mind, what scrolls in my mind has a direct impact on our family, on our friends, on our church, on our workplace, and on our world. We, we're all pretty, we like to think that we're in control. And we're not governed by anything. You know what? I know what I'm saying, what I'm, what I'm doing. But I'm telling you, everything that's growing through your mind is influencing your family, is influencing your friends. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew, don't hide your light. Let it shine brightly before others so that the commendable things you do will shine as light upon them. There's impact. And they will give praise to your Father in heaven. How would you describe your impact? How would you say you are influencing the people in your life? Is it one of inspiration or cynicism? Is it hopefulness or despair? Are you an encourager or a complainer? See, seeing how Jesus regularly interacted with people, it challenges me to ask myself a question regularly. And it's this. Are people better off because of my presence in their life? Are people better off? Do they leave me better or worse? Elaine Hatfield wrote a book on the psychological phenomenon known as emotional contagion. It means this. The tendency to automatically mimic and synchronize facial expressions vocalizations, postures, and movements with those of another person, and consequently, to converge emotionally. Have you noticed that when you hang around complainers, you start complaining? When you hang around people who have great hope, you start being hopeful, emotional contagion. My wife and I love talking about marriage. It's our passion. God's done an amazing work in our life, and we can't not share it. And it reminded me of a time a while ago back when my parents were visiting. And they were bickering at each other constantly, right, taking shots and just, it was rough. But within three days, four days, we were kind of elbowing each other. Look at this. They started holding hands. My parents don't hold hands. 
they started kissing each other. I mean, I know you're thinking, Ooh, but you know what? I was like, well, look at that. I didn't know they kissed either, right? But we began to see them love each other, care more for their marriage. That's emotional contagion. What kind of impact are you having? Because listen, the opposite is true as well. Have you ever been around in a workplace situation and everyone's bad-mouthing their spouse? It starts like one or two people, and before you know it, you got a mob, an angry mob. Everyone's looking for a divorce lawyer. Give me a way out. My spouse is the worst. You know, the opposite is true as well. What kind of impact are you making? Do you want to leave a lasting impression for people? Do you want to be one of hopefulness? Then we have to meditate and apply these scriptures. And I'm going to share just a real little quick formula that I used myself when I came out of three and a half decades of wrong thinking. Something that changed my life, and I continue to do it even today, 14 years later. Can I invite the worship team just to come back up, please? As I mentioned earlier, the Apostle Paul represents one of the greatest transformations in the Bible. If he's number one, I got to say that Peter's a close second. See, Peter regularly stepped over his words, and he made mistakes, but he ended up becoming one of the most powerful figures in the early church. He launched what we're able to celebrate today. And like Paul... He also told us what we need to do and where we need to go to get our identity right with Christ and to make the impact that Jesus has asked all of us to make. In one, both of his letters, the first one, 1 Peter 1.13, listen what he says. And what I want to challenge us all tonight, he says, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. In 2, in 2 Peter 1.3, he said, his divine power, Jesus' divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So, ladies and gentlemen, the solution to controlling and directing our thoughts and thus our actions, it lies in the power of Jesus Christ. And we release that power. In a continuous cycle of change, sometimes in small ways, sometimes in big. But the important thing is to keep the momentum going. First, you have to ask. You have to ask. You have to have the courage and humility to ask. Because asking prepares our minds for action. I remember... In early 2000, 2001, when Jesus stepped into my life in such a dramatic way, I had all of these same thoughts at 35 years old that held me captive my whole life. And I didn't know the difference between one or the other. And I said, help me see these thoughts in light of your truth. Help me see them in light of your truth because sometimes I don't know what's true and I don't want to trust myself. Help me see it in light of your truth. Have the courage to ask someone else, is there anything I can do to improve our interaction? Ask. 
think sometimes as believers, we have that first big ask. And then it may shave off some of those egregious sins. But then we stop asking because we think we're okay. And then we stop growing. This is a regular part of our life. Ask, Lord, help me. Help me see these thoughts in light of your truth. And then second, we have to answer. There's a responsibility to us to, to fight back, become that voice of truth in the debate and be able to fight, to take every thought captive and make it obedient to the measure of Jesus Christ. We have to be able to come back and combat those negative thoughts with something. And we can't do that if we're not spending the time knowing his word. So when those thoughts come against you, come back at them with the word. And then lastly, you and I, we got to act. We got to do something about it. A lot of us ask and a lot of us answer, but very few of us are acting. Only by stepping out and beginning to behave in a new way do you develop a new history. Do you begin to, to get a solid new ground underneath you? Then you know how to deal with things different the way, you, the way you used to fall to them. You don't fall to them anymore. So stand with me. Tonight, as we go into a time of worship, there are folks in the back. The leaves are back here. We're going to have a couple people up front. If, if you're here tonight and, and you just want some prayer, because you know what? Maybe you're ready to ask. Or maybe tonight you need to answer some of those negative and defeating thoughts that the enemy is using against you. Or maybe God has put it on your heart and said, you know what? When you leave here tonight, tonight is your first step in your action to begin to find your identity in Christ and make an impact in the world the way he's called us. Let's worship. Great, I 
will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. And all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing. Great. And all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These troubles say, Great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs. So we. chapter of Colossians since then you've been raised with Christ set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God set your minds on things above not on earthly things for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God father I thank you for tonight for every person here that represents a life story up to this point, Father, and that you have entered in such an amazing way tonight that going forward, every person will live just a little bit more like you. So continue to stir the hearts of your people, bringing them to you for your clarity and your word's sake, Jesus. Thank you. 
your mighty and holy and great name. Amen and amen. Thank you all for coming, and we'll see you next week. So